is 12.02 in the afternoon on your Monday, November 20th, 2017. This is the LDS Live Podcast. A few notes here before we get into the podcast. If you want to make a suggestion or suggest a guest or whatever, email the podcast. Email me at kevinw at ldslivepodcast.com. That's kevinw at ldslivepodcast.com. Now, I've had a major criticism lately about my podcast that I want to address. People say, oh, Kevin, you have been interviewing too many politically conservative people on your podcast, which is contradicting what is on your website. That is true. However, understand that I have tried to email and reach out to people such as Lex Diazavedo, and uh, Brent Ashworth, who is a document collector, who, by the way, I really want on the podcast because he dealt with Mark Hoffman firsthand. Um, And I've had some authors. It just so happens to be that the politically conservative people are coming to me right now, and it's easier to get a hold of them. Therefore, that's why I have them on the podcast. And just because I'm interviewing someone who is politically conservative, or liberal for that matter, doesn't mean I'm going to agree with them on everything. Uh, My guest here can tell you that I am a pretty independent thinker. Now, we agree, my guest and I agree quite a bit of the time, but uh, just like any human relationships, no matter how much you like someone, or even if you're married to someone, you're not going to agree with them all the time. Isn't that right, Joni? That's right. We, we would like to think so. We, w- we want to think, oh, uh, my wife is my best friend, or so-and-so is my best friend. We're going to agree on all that. Uh, that's not true, is it? No, it's not. No? So I've never been married. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't either, but uh, anyway... I know some people who listen to the podcast can relate. Uh, This is the LDS Live Podcast. I'm Kevin Williams, uh, podcasting in my Kevin Cave here in West Jordan, Utah. And Joni Bills is with me. Now, uh, this is a very... We're going to have some really interesting conversations. Joni is LDS, and she is the field director of the Utah chapter of the Americans of Prosperity. Now, uh, before we get into that, Joni, let's talk about uh, your life here. You grew up LDS, correct? I did. I did. And I assume that you were active most of your life anyway, or all of it, or whatever. Yeah, all of it. Pretty standard. Baptized at eight, born into the covenant. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's my religious background. Pretty, pretty solidly active. Do you have pioneer stock? <laughs> yes, actually, I do. So do I. Um... If you don't mind sharing, who is your, uh, who are you related, anyone famous in the Mormon community? Famous pioneer? Well, um, Peter Howard McBride is one of them. Oh. And, oh, you, it's already clicking, you are familiar with him? No, who is, who is that? Well, he was part of the Martin and Willie Hancock companies, and... Oh, okay. And I think if you watch 17 Miracles, I haven't watched 17 Miracles yet, but I think his story, or parts of his story, is highlighted. Um, All I remember 
Well, just the, the general experience, not necessarily anything specific about him, but I think his name is even mentioned at the, the end of that movie. Someone pointed out to me. Uh, he was really young when they were crossing the plains, and his father actually died, and they were burying him, you know, in the snow. And as a six-year-old child, he ran up to the corpse, who's, you know, crying, wait, wait, wait. And they're, you know, trying to shoo him away as he lost his father. And he said, my pocket knife is in his pocket. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I'm I, sure uh, he missed his dad as well. But, you know, in that scenario, a pocket knife was definitely very much needed. Oh, absolutely. Uh, especially since we didn't have certification of knives back then, which we'll get to later in the podcast. But, uh... Oh. I would imagine it would be really hard. I think the pioneer. I think uh, if we had to go, let's say from Salt Lake to Missouri, I think you would have more people quitting the church or leaving it than you did back then, don't you think? If we had to do it the exact same way that the pioneers did, I don't think very many people would survive. Do you? I I have to agree. It would be quite the test to see. I wouldn't know how to survive because I haven't through. lived that lifestyle. I wouldn't know how to do it unless I was around a whole bunch of people that did. Well, I think we have become kind of spoiled these days, both from oh, religious persecution and from the physical aspects of how hard that would be. I know on my other side of the family, one of my ancestors you know, left her family in Tennessee and crossed the plains on her own as a, I think she was 17 or 18, 16 oh to my. 18, around that age. And, yes, so we definitely don't have the opportunity to sacrifice as much physically and aren't as, as prepared for those physical hardships. You know, I don't know much about my family history, but I do know that on my dad's side, uh, Somebody came over here and built, helped build the Salt Lake Temple. And I do have a great, I don't know how many greats, but Grandfather Miller who came over. Oh. Now, I, I know Miller is a common name in the Mormon church. Yes, um, yes. But I'm not sure what, I don't know much about him. I just know the name. But uh, apparently there's a person I'm related to named Marion. In fact, my cousin named his youngest daughter, Marin, after one of our pioneer ancestors. Uh, so I do have a little bit of pioneer stocks. But uh, So you grew up in Arizona. What was life like for you as a kid? Well, life was definitely interesting. I loved the heat. It was a small town. Mm -hmm. um, cotton. They grow cotton there, so there's a lot of cotton fields. And mostly spent the summer swimming to stay cool. So, yeah, it was nice, nice little area. My grandparents, my both my parents are from Pima, Arizona. And I guess the only significance I can give the place is now the Gila Valley Temple was dedicated under 10 years ago. I was trying to remember what year that exactly was. Now there's a temple there. And also, this is where the Eyrings are from, Pima, Arizona, actually, not, not Henry V. Eyrings or Hal, but Hal's parents. Um, so Henry V. Eyrings' grandparents were from Pima. And 
It's right by Thatcher, where Spencer W. Kimball grew up. So I guess that's the claim to fame. It was founded and settled by Mormon pioneers as well. Oh, where you lived at? Yes, yes. This oh, my is, gosh. You know, the little town I grew up in. Yeah, what was the town you grew up in? Anyway, I know it was by Phoenix. Pima. It's two oh, and a half Pima. hours east of the Mesa, Phoenix area. P-I-M-A, Pima. By the way, side note, uh, Mesa is the home of Jimmy Eat World. Have you heard of them? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> yeah, I like a lot of their music. Anyway, now you have an interesting story. Uh, what got you into politics? Well, I do have an interesting story. As a child, my dad took a stance on some things, and it ended up in a court case that lasted from the time I was a baby until I was 11. Oh. And during the court case, um, there was, you know, the original charges that were brought up. They were all found not guilty on all the original charges. But there was a court order that was given, which by legal precedent should have been invalid because it didn't mention specifically my dad's name, Mitchell Bills. So, you know, to be ordered to do something the basic legal precedence is you've got to mention names, and it didn't mention names. And the judge, when giving the jury instructions, didn't explain this to the jury, so they were found not guilty, or they were found guilty on that, not guilty on everything else, but found guilty on failing to comply with a court order, which was, you know, pretty, it's pretty rare to have that become a felony, but the judge did give them, um, was as hard on them as he could be. So my dad went to prison when I was 11 for a year and a half. And outside of that, I grew up with strong, um, more libertarian type conservative values, um, strong values in reading the Constitution. My dad would talk about the first ten amendments to the Constitution and even had us memorize them at one point, memorize the Declaration oh, wow. of Independence. And, yeah, so it was very, very, you know, solid in honoring these correct principles that, of you know, American jurisprudence and having a wonderful legal system and having what we call equal rights under the Constitution being treated equally by the law, which often people misinterpret equality as equal opportunity, where the liberals kind of push for this equal opportunity, but the, the Constitution's idea was that we would all be treated fairly by government, that we'd all be treated equally by government, and in that equal treatment by government, that we would, that we would have justice, and so that was something that stayed with me um, maybe more so than some of my other siblings and or at least I just had the opportunity to end up in a job in a, in a kind of career path that allows me to um, share that passion every day which is quite the blessing yeah so when okay so how old were you and your dad was in prison I was 11 okay that's what I okay and uh what did he take a stands for? I guess he took it again. What did he take a stands against? Well, it was back in the 1980s. In 1980s, 
was a different legal environment than it is today. So he, with uh, someone named John Granbush, John Granbush had opened up an exchange, and the idea behind the exchanges of the 1980s, there were gold and silver exchanges, and the idea was to restore our monetary system because, uh, you know, I guess to mention a few other names, if you've read, it's a short little book booklet called Pieces of Eight by Edwin J. Vieira. Oh, okay. And he t- talks about inflation, how the printing of money causes inflation that the Federal Reserve engages in. And oh, wow. calls it Pieces of Eight because back in the Roman times, the you know the first inflation of currency was they would chip off pieces of the coins so that they could make more illegally kind of the equivalent of of making more money <laughs> and or you know of just creating money out of thin air so they would chip off the coins and that's why actually if you hold up your your penny or your quarter or your dime all of our all of our modern day coins which are almost antiqui- antiquated because we don't use dollar bills and coins as much anymore but they have ridges on the side you'll notice that they have ridges on the side and those ridges prevent you from chipping away and creating your own and you know defacing the money and making more money from 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 it so that's where the title comes from pieces of eight and and he talks about in briefly and I think in clear easier terms to understand just talks about how our monetary system and our taxation system work together and the fact that the Federal Reserve can print all this money and cause inflation is a hidden tax and you know back in the 1980s kind of Ron Paul type of people they believed that the gold standard would fix that and it definitely would fix that inflation problem so so they had this idea that to kind of create um, a, an exchange where people could hold their assets in gold and silver and the IRS did not like this because it provided a lot of privacy and although it was legal to do so it, it de facto kind of became a little bit of a tax shelter and so they went after pretty, um, they went after pretty hard. <laughs> they went after all these exchanges. They definitely wanted to shut them down. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of the charges that were brought against would have been, um, would have put my dad in prison for life. And so they were, they were serious. <laughs> they were serious about shutting these exchanges down. And um, all of their charges they were found not guilty on and in fact there was a lot of the illegal illegal aspects to the case that were conducted by the government there the exchange was raided April 5th 1985 when I was just five months old to the day actually Wow! and when the SWAT teams came in and raided it they did confiscate some precious metals and I can't remember the amount. It was years ago, and it doesn't matter. But during the case, one of the big ironies is during the case, the government was also 
ordered by the court to return the funds that were seized, and nobody went to prison for not following through with that court order, but the funds were never returned. So there's all sorts of little things like that that definitely showed to me that we are not in an equal playing field, and we're not treated equally by the law, and justice is not served, and all's not well in America. There's a lot a lot of issues going on. Our legal system has become corrupted, and... Oh, I and, agree, yes. Yeah, it's a crazy world. <laughs> yeah. Now, so your dad took a stand against, uh, I guess, the regular currency he had. How did the IRS know that he had all this gold? Mm-hmm. It was an, The exchange operated somewhat as a bank, people back then, you know, and in my mind, this is the way I imagine it, but um, I, you know, I was a child, so I, maybe I'll have to ask him for greater clarity again. It's been years since I've had him, since I've reviewed this story or whatever. So he, you know, as the exchange, pretty much you could, you would buy gold and silver and the exchange would hold it for you until you wanted to liquidate that asset and yeah and even I in my imagination I imagine people being able to take their paycheck in instead of depositing depositing it in a bank they literally you know because back then you could sign over as a third party check sign it over to someone nowadays you can't do that after um, the um, Patriot Act, actually, I think is what changed that. But, you know, you used to sign over checks to people, and all you had to do was write, you know, write it out, and they could cash a check for you. And so I imagine that that's kind of partly how it worked with people, you know, but however the money got to the exchange, people were were depositing money and holding and then the exchange would hold their assets so it operated like a like a like a different kind of a bank oh okay <laughs> you'd hold your assets in gold and silver and when it was time and you know and they were watching the exchange rates as well you know so when it was time to liquidate then my dad would help people liquidate the gold and silver into cash again and so it just it became they became kind of a middleman for holding the gold and silver assets in a in a in a quasi bank where people could actually have instead of having funds in a bank they could actually hold it all in gold and silver well i don't know if you're aware well first of all before i go there what so was your dad a financial planner or something like that for a living um no under the laws in the 80s you know i don't remember who had what kinds of legal or certifications or whatnot, but that wasn't even something that was they were charged with. Licensing laws have definitely changed a lot over the last 50 years, for sure. We're so going to have a talk about licensing the, in a while, but go ahead. Yeah. No, so I don't have any knowledge as to what the licensing requirements would have been to operate that. He was not the only person, and in fact, at one point, he was... Um, he was kind of his own write, writing a newsletter um, part of the so at one point he was completely self-employed but kind of as a, a branch of the exchange that was more in writing a newsletter and um, kind of my dad was, was into he was licensed as an insurance 
um, he did insurance before that, so kind of gives a little bit of that background. So not a financial planner, but in the insurance industry. And yeah, the exchange operated outside of those licenses. And whether or not the other people who were operating, John Voss or John Granbush, what their roles were and what licenses were required, I don't know. I don't know. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, So when your dad was in prison, you were 11, did you go see him at all? Every other week. We drove two and a half hours. No, it was more like three and a half to El Paso, Texas, actually. It was a a minimum security just... (laughs) You went to El Paso? Yeah, yeah. That's where he was... It was only a two and a, it was a three and a half hour drive from Arizona. Mm-hmm. We drove down every other week or oh, so. Wow. And so, what was it like seeing your dad in prison? Because I know you can only see somebody what for an hour or something like that. I I understand that's how it works for a lot of prisoners anyway. It's minimum security. So when we would go, um, we would have to have clear bags or all bags would have to be taken and they would put the bags in lockers where we could, you know, they'd search the bags and we'd go back and get them. Uh, it was set up because it was minimum security. It wasn't as dramatic as, you know, what you see on TV where you have somebody, you know, behind bars. You can only talk to one person and they're handcuffed and, yeah. you know, you're talking through a hole. It wasn't like that. The families, um, Saturday and Sunday were visiting hours and they had visiting hours probably like 9 to 4 p.m. and so you'd get there at 9 you couldn't bring any food or anything in and um, I remember a Valentine's Day card that I had made with blue was censored um, all the mail was completely censored and so you know like if you had anything that they thought could have something that wasn't supposed to get in then it would be taken apart and destroyed pretty much and so um but minimum security all of the inmates families could all meet kind of there was like an outside area a grassy area and then there was a large cafeteria type area with just like booth tables and chairs and vending machines you couldn't bring in any of your food or anything so is the cafeteria food yucky you know as a child I mean, looking back, I would think it was absolutely disgusting. But as a child, it was this this um, opportunity to eat more junk food than we normally did. You know, vending machines always have candy and candy bars. I guess and, uh, I guess yeah. your mom couldn't afford to go out to eat. I, I Knowing my mom, in a situation like that, we would have probably stopped at Wendy's or Burger King or something before going in. But maybe, you know, obviously. You know, it is interesting because there was a lot of people that my dad met in prison one guy that who who couldn't read and he pretended you know he was like a big tough um big tough guy and he he roomed with my dad and he he pretended like he you know he tried to get my dad to read the letters and eventually my dad figured out that he just couldn't read he didn't even know how to read and and you there are people that are actually they're working in the jobs, and the best prison jobs, you're making like a dollar or a dollar twenty-five an hour, 
And there were literally people that would send the money home. And it's really sad, you know, to think about the vending machines because, you know, bean burrito or something for lunch probably cost like two fifty. So oh, you no. know, thankfully, although my family did struggle during that time because my mom homeschooled us and we you know, and she wasn't working during that time. So although we did struggle, we were not we were definitely better off than most. So yeah, yeah, but financially that could be quite a burden for the families who were coming to visit if they could even afford to come to visit. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it was hard. How how did it, we'll talk about uh, your current venture here in a few minutes, but how was it? I mean, did people at church treat you weird, and how was it? What does your dad, and you were 11 years old, what does your dad do for a living? You said to um. his schoolmate, uh, <laughs> he's in prison. How, how did that go over? Because obviously, I'm going to think you would have gotten a bad reputation, not any fault of your oh, own. Oh, it was just... hard. Yeah, it was hard. And, and that's, you know, it's a small town, too, so everyone everyone knew us and and still do. And, you know, it, it definitely was hard. And I would say for anyone in church, anytime you have someone that has something going on that is not culturally, generally culturally acceptable, mm-hmm. it's always best to go directly to the person and ask. I felt even as a child that people were talking about us and the word was really nice i remember they did the 12 days of christmas for us and they were really sweet but it was hard because most people have this idea that if somebody goes to prison in the united states of america they still have these rosy colored glasses on that say that if somebody you know is even accused of a crime these days if you're even accused of a crime it's like you're tarnished yeah and yeah, and it is, it, it was difficult. I was a sensitive child, and I, I didn't necessarily feel animosity towards us, but kind of the, a little bit of, you know, pity and, and just misunderstandings. And we had some wonderful people in, you know, in our ward. Our stake president was really understanding and and my dad was really good at, you know, this this whole court case was a long process. So, you know, the rumors and everything about my family started before he left. And, oh, and wow. I think they probably lingered <laughs> how after was, he came back. <laughs> how was the relationship with uh, your parents and your bishop? Did your dad ever worry about getting excommunicated or any of that? Some of these cases can get pretty ugly, regardless yeah, of who's at fault or whatever. Now, our state president, you know, he was really, really good. I don't remember who was bishop at the time. And the state president had been a state president for longer and um, third cousin, actually. So he knew our family. And my dad had long talks with him to explain the situation. And so, thankfully, there was nothing like that. The only time I, I think, and it did... And it's more hurtful than people realize to be in this situation. Um, and I understand that the bishop was just doing his best. But, in fact, it was years later, my dad one time got up and bore his testimony. And he mentioned the Count of Monte Cristo. And he talked about how um, he grateful he was for the Constitution and how in the Count of Monte Cristo, 
we had watched the movie, which I love the book and I don't like the movie, but my dad loved the principle that was taught even in the movie that being held indefinitely is not a good thing. It doesn't serve justice. You know, he's locked away for years without a trial and kind of explained how the Constitution offers those protections so that that would never happen here if we were following it. And the bishop talked to him afterwards and kind of, you know, and basically told him that he had stepped out of the bounds of the testimony and was preaching politics from the pulpit or something like that, you know. And I think people often, I know my dad will never hold a high priesthood calling because of that. And when I say high, I say a lot of people unfortunately look at the church as if it's a hierarchy that you climb up, you know, to become bishop or stake president someday. And I know that this, you know, this, that this, that he's a marked man, and he knows it too, that he'll never have those those high-profile callings. And that's not what's important in life, thankfully. We're not going to be judged on that in the hereafter. And he's been wonderful. He's had young men and scouting and other opportunities, but he never seems to be given a, you know, although he has been asked to teach, um, you know, on priesthood, I think, I think that's kind of the thing that I think sometimes bishops and state presidents and especially probably in high where there's in areas where there's a ton of LDS, you know, high high LDS population areas. I think they're kind of blinded by their own prejudice and not willing to call people to callings. Because J. Reuben Clark, most people don't realize this, but J. Reuben Clark, he was he served as I think first pres he was in the first presidency at one point under David O. McKay. So yeah, so he when he was first called to a bishop or a state president, he was completely inactive. And they oh. went to his door and said, <laughs> yeah, smoking, drinking, everything. And he said, well, I guess I better shape my life, get <laughs> my life in shape. And I've heard stories like that throughout throughout the, you know, throughout the years. And maybe it's not the best way to go about things. But I think sometimes you have to follow the Spirit when you're giving those callings. And I think that when you're in high LDS population densities, and a lot of those callings sometimes go to the person that looks like they're the best fit. And instead of really being a little bit more open to um, the, I don't know, prejudice. I think there is some prejudice involved personal prejudice involved sometimes in the giving of callings but anyway i think that's kind of i guess one thing i could say from an lds perspective is is don't be afraid of people who have had a felony talk to them and find out their story because there's a really good book and i can never remember the author's name but it's called three felonies a day and our laws have become so voluminous that we break laws all the time, we just don't know it. And the worst thing is that because of legal precedent, there's a sort of vagueness to the laws that they really can be interpreted 
to create felonies out of a lot of good people that just made some sort of like filing mistake financially and things like that where we we have so many laws that the average person if they're trying to you know run their own business or do something without a lawyer's help they can't afford a lawyer yet then they really easily could get themselves in legal trouble not by doing anything intentionally illegal or with malintent but simply because the laws are so voluminous and sometimes so broad that you it really can can get more people into trouble than they realize and those kinds of laws are not just in my opinion unless the lawyers in love with you if you remember the song <laughs> lawyers in love by jackson brown i don't know that song <laughs> oh, it's a great song huh. you ought to look it up it came out i, I believe will. in 83 i think um, anyway, yeah, I agree with you 100%. I know a guy that's, uh, I, I'm not going to mention his name out here on the podcast, but I know a guy who's a good friend of mine who is in trouble with the law, and I don't think it's any fault of his own. I think uh, the media has, I've read his, uh, I've read what the media said about him, and I did what you said. I got his side of the story, and because I knew this guy before he had a felony, it was pretty easy for me to see through the media hype that this person was is was getting and probably get once he goes to trial. It's really sad. Yes, it is really sad. And, you know, you've got people, oh, you, you should stay away from this guy. Uh, no, I asked him, and I like the way he conducts himself around me and others. I'm not going to, in fact, I even told him, uh, if you're in prison, I'll come see you sometimes. Uh, well, that's because, wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah, and uh, anyway, uh, so so you're done with high school. What was high school like? Did you have a good high school experience once all that came about, or did you still have the stigma? What was your high school experience like? I don't know if it was the stigma as much as just small towns are incredibly quickish. Um, yes, I had... Um, the girl that ran for student body president my senior year she told her friend that she couldn't run because she didn't have the right last name and her last name was the right last name and every yeah every year that that last name has to be school president so I didn't quite fit in I was art, an artist you were told that you couldn't towns. run for student body president because of your last name or someone else? No, no, somebody else. Oh, okay, that's what I thought. Okay. Yes, yes, so it wasn't me, but, you know, I heard the story and just thought that's absolutely ridiculous. So my attitude during high school, there was 42 in my graduating class. So, I mean, we're talking small, small, teeny tiny, and... People acted like becoming valedictorian or being the football star of this small little area was the best thing in the world. And I admire people who are ambition, have ambition and want to excel. But I just went in, since I had been homeschooled, I went into high school kind of with the mindset that there's a bigger world out there. And... There's a lot of pettiness that happens, like I said, with the whole, 
<laughs> Only one person with this particular last name can ever be student body president. You know, there's some ridiculous little petty things that definitely happened during high school. It was I have a this. confession to make. So, I didn't like high school. <laughs> I'll just end it there. <laughs> well, I, I have a uh, confession to make. I used to be prejudiced against homeschooled people because I had a really bad experience in dealing with a homeschooled person who was, and I'm not saying you were one of these, I don't know, but she was so sheltered and clueless about life. And so anytime I've heard of someone who was homeschooled, I thought, ick, 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 I'm staying away from that individual. Uh, I've changed my mind since then because of experiences, but I'm sure you got a lot of that yourself. I did, and I was incredibly shy, but talking to my friends as an adult, I was a really sensitive child. I was the sensitive artist, or whatever, you know, the typical sensitive artist. So, a lot of times, it's more of the culture, the family culture that makes homeschoolers weird or not weird, and sometimes that weirdness is not necessarily a bad thing, and the other thing is that had I gone to elementary school and been picked on, I probably would be a different person today. In some ways, I probably was too sheltered, but in other ways, I was protected from a lot of the nastiness. Children can be really mean to each other, and had oh, I experienced yeah. what my best friend experienced during elementary school, I might have been mean, too. I don't know if I would have turned out as well as she did. <laughs> well, let me tell you, from uh, fourth to the end of my seventh grade year, I was a jerk to a lot of people, especially in sixth and seventh grade. Well, even in high school, I can think of one time when I was not as nice to somebody as I should have been because of my own little fears of what the cool kids or what people would think of me. So, I mean, I understand it we're all insecure and we're all put together and there's kind of a, a pack yeah. mentality and a hierarchy, a social hierarchy. And so we all fall into that weakness of, of that false pack mentality sometimes. And kids can be brutal. They can be mean. Yeah. Now, uh, so you're done with high school. Where do you go to college? I know you went to George with. We'll get into that. Where did you go first, though? I'm sure you went elsewhere. And so right there, and Thatcher is right by Pima. Thatcher is actually where Spencer W. Kimball was from. And so Thatcher there, there's a community college called Eastern Arizona College. And I had an art scholarship for um, different art competitions that I'd been in. And so oh. I had a two-year art scholarship. So I spent two years at the community college. Okay. And then, uh, did you go to George Wentz right after that then? I, well, I had like three classes that I needed to get an associate and then figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. But being homeschooled, I always viewed education a little bit differently. And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And I wasn't looking for a career necessarily. I wanted to be a better person and make the world a better place, get married someday and have children and teach my children. So I had more of this idea of the person I wanted to be a, become and not a job. So yeah. I went to 
they were doing some seminars. They called them the Face to Face with Greatness seminars. And they did one down in Mesa, Arizona. They, meaning was Dr. Brooks. Was this George Brooks. Witt or was this someone else? Dr. Brooks was vice president of George Witt. And so he used oh. these seminars as a, as a recruitment tool for the college. And Good idea. Yeah, it was like a two- or three-day seminar. There was like three books that we read. I think, if I remember correctly, we read probably a Shakespeare play and discussed it. We read a, what was it? We read The Inner Ring by C.S. Lewis, which talks about human nature and how human nature forms rings or circles or cliques. And, yeah, a really good essay worth reading, and we discussed that, and a few other things were discussed, and The Little Britches was the book that I remember the most, because it was my least favorite, but the discussion was so good that I had, like, two chapters left that it kind of changed my mind about the book. That's kind of the, the... male version of Laura Ingalls Wilder, kind of Little House on the Prairie type of a story, but it's about a little boy and the family growing up farming and the work ethic and taking care of the animals. And so it's, it's a really I've good I've actually uh, read story. the Little House on the Prairie series. I, I, listen, I started listening to it, never finished it. I was uh, 28 years old and Somebody asked, what are you doing listening to books like that? They're for girls, first of all, and they're for little kids. And I thought, well, they have pretty good history behind them, so I don't really care. They do. They do. And great, solid principles. When I taught at yeah. Challenger, which I did teach for three years at a private school, Challenger, that was one book that we read together in first grade. So my six- and seven-year-olds read Little House, Little House in the Big Woods. You know, I understand the TV show that does not uh, coincide with the books. No, it does not, but it's still kind of My- Michael Landon is the producer, right? Yeah. It's still It's still good, wholesome family entertainment. There's, it's, it's a lot more fluffy than the book, but, yeah. you know, good, good wholesome entertainment. Actually, uh, I did see one episode that I thought was funny. I know it was a rerun because I don't know when that show aired from when to when. There's a station, uh, Channel 12, in Napa, Idaho, close to Boise, where in the Boise area where I grew up in the Treasure Valley of Oregon and Idaho. And there was this one episode you may remember. They were at, The kids were at their grandparents' house, and they were just getting into all kinds of mischief. Uh, one of the kids pulled the feathers off all the chickens, and the grandfather was not too happy. And uh, somebody, I think, wasn't one of the characters Myron in the story in the in the TV show? I don't remember. Yeah, there were different characters then, in the TV show uh, than the he book. He kept uh, taking his food from his other brother, and the grandfather got upset and told him to quit doing that. And then there was a scene where one of the kids was doing something, and the grandfather said, "Stop it!" and the one of the kids made a smart aleck remark saying, tell me to stop it forever. So the grandfather said, stop it forever. Do you remember that episode? I don't. Oh, it was pretty funny. I was That's in, uh, funny. Let's see, I must have been, yeah, I was in between my fourth and fifth grade year when I saw that. I was at someone's house. Uh, anyway, yeah. Um, okay, so carry on. Uh, you went to the seminar, and uh, 
you read these books by C.S. Lewis, and what else happened? Well, they they mostly gave inspiring information. They talked about how school these days is more of a conveyor belt idea that we aren't treated as individuals. It's a one-size-fits-all. This is what you need to know in first grade. This is what you need to know in second grade. And on, you know, up the conveyor belt until they can give it their stamp of approval and send us off on our way. And how job training and education are two very different things. They talked about the root word, the Latin for liberty, is also, you know, libre in Spanish, is also book. And it actually goes back to the word for contract in Latin. And those who were educated could read and write and, and, and engage in contracts. And so... George Wythe was founded on the idea that education, the liberal arts education, is to teach people how to think and to discuss the great ideas throughout history. Like, it, you know, if you have ever seen the great book series, to go back and read Plato and think about what he discussed. In fact, we probably read Plato's Allegory of the Cave, where he talks about you know, there's two groups of people, those who can see the light and are free to move about, and what if human beings were actually, figuratively speaking, um, chained to a wall in the cave, and all they saw were the shadows from the light, and they thought those shadows were reality. I mean, talk about media today, shadows of reality. <laughs> I think, you know, we all have our perceptions and think they're true, and so it just opened up this aha in my brain that that was what I always thought education should be and that was what was missing in my college education and that you know I was not looking for a career part of being LDS and a woman I had ingrained in me that I was going to get married and while education was important it was always secondary to that and so somebody would provide for me that career idea was always something that was secondary in fact to the point that now that I'm 33 and still single I do wish <laughs> I had I had a little bit more of that job training ingrained in me <laughs> yeah I'm 37 still George single said, so join oh. the club but yeah right right I graduated from George West and thought oh here I have this wonderful education but I don't know what to do with it yet <laughs> You could do a podcast. That's right. That's right. It's very um, true. Very true. I want to talk about the conveyor belt education sometime. I don't have time to get into it now because we'd get way off topic. But that okay. would be an interesting podcast because uh, I went to the, and I, I remember talking about this, one of, uh, the George Woods students, and I don't even remember what he said, but I was at a training center in Louisiana, and just due to the things, I think we were on kind of a conveyor belt slash professional education probably uh yeah you know we all have to start on a conveyor belt to some and let's face it there are some jobs like an engineer would have to be on a conveyor belt education because their education is so specific yes uh, yes the, and yeah. that is that is definitely true but would that engineer do better in his job if he had the liberal arts as a foundation first teaching him more critical thinking skills and discussing so Possibly. Ideally, I mean, if yeah. you want to go down the route of raising kids, I, 
being a broadcaster, I, I was, I, I'm on a conveyor belt education, although I've been able to branch out and do my own thing, but yeah, I, I was definitely on a conveyor yeah. belt, and rightfully so, you know, you have to go to school, learn how to be a good broadcaster, or get the training somehow. Yes, yes, yes. Jobs training has its place, but mm-hmm. it's, but unfortunately, the liberal arts is being lost, I'd say especially K through 12, and with the liberal arts being lost in K through 12, then we have a lot of students that are coming away from school not able to read, mm-hmm. not able to think critically, because they're taught more in this manner of, this is what you're supposed to know, therefore know it, as if we can pour knowledge into little kids' heads. As an adult, yes, job training is something that you need and you get when you choose that career, but as, as human beings, we need to be able to look at it, an idea and judge its merit based on our own personal values and look at our own personal values and judge their own merit. And that ability to do that, you know, and the ability to read and write and do math and critical thinking skills, I think the fact that we're losing those in K-12 is tied to this conveyor belt, one-size-fits-all, lecture-based, testing-based oh, yeah. education, for sure. Yeah, so uh, I'd love to get on this tangent, but I can't, because we'd really get okay. off topic. But we, we'll, <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't mind doing a show about it sometime, because it is something... I remember listening to Oliver DeMille's CD, who is the uh, was the president of George With, and... Uh, yeah. Uh, so you're at George... When were you at George With, from when to when? I found George With... Let's see, I left in 2010, so I did a semester distance in 2006 and then came up to Cedar City. It was in Cedar City at the time in 2006 and took a break, I think, in 2008 and 9 and came back 2010 and or finished finished up in 2010. And you had know, one so year you were there, it's interesting because I... I know some, well, you you know, I know some George With people, or former George With people. Yes. And I thought I knew all the George With people by when 2008 came around, but apparently I didn't. Um, well, 2008 could have been, I think that would have been, I 2008, probably winter 2008, and, and let's see, winter 2008 would be winter 2008 and fall 2000 maybe i came back in fall i oh I yeah fall I, yeah i was so gone that could have been you could have came right when i left too because yeah my junior year technically i left so i but you were there the freshman sophomore year in 2005 you said no 2006 in january oh, 2006 yeah, was, okay yeah, I was th- I was at SUU, and oh well, I thought I knew all the George with people at that time, but apparently not. Anyway, no, um, some of us didn't get out and socialize as much as others. <laughs> yeah, um, it's funny though because I actually ran into people. One person thought I was a George Witt student for most of the time that I knew her. I actually took that as a compliment. Uh, yeah. I guess I impressed her enough. She was not a student, but she had a daughter that was a student, and I knew the daughter, and uh, she was married to one of my cousins, still is. 
but uh, I don't know. I, I sometimes wondered if people thought that I was a dry George Witt student, because I, I was at SU trying to get my degree. The reason I thought about going to George Witt, actually, but I decided against it for a couple of reasons. Number one, I didn't feel like I quite fit in, because at that time I was pretty liberal, um, and most people were really much more conservative than me politically, but that, the main reason... And well, we can talk about this in another podcast, and I didn't go because I wanted to go to a place that was accredited because being blind, it's hard enough to get a job as it is, and why put more yeah. strikes against me? So I wanted to go to a place that had accreditation. It was nothing against George Witt per se. It was just for my own survival purposes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I had nothing against the school. I, I liked the idea. But uh, So you graduated from George Witt, and then... You went on to become a teacher. I did. I Well, I had a few other jobs in between, but I moved up here in 2011, and the next fall I taught at Challenger. I taught first grade for two years, and then I taught fourth grade, and that was ever, um, in many ways, more difficult than... George with. <laughs> but why, why um, was it more difficult? We can go into it a little bit because I think okay, this will bridge was, right into what I really want to talk about. Academically, it was it was just as they have such high academic standards that it was just as academically challenging, I would say, as George with to a certain extent. In some ways, maybe George with George with was more reading, but the the research the studying of the curriculum, all of that was was definitely um, George Wiss's good preparation. And just emotionally, teaching is harder than people realize. You want to do your best and it's 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 a different job than most. Your best is not measured by the same results every day. You're dealing with little human beings and you're dealing with the parents of those little human beings, and you're dealing with demands from administration. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. all of that together is incredibly stressful, <laughs> more so than most people realize. And it never leaves you. It's like being a parent. You take the work home, and you grade it, and you're thinking about these little people all day, and, you know, it really it really does take its toll. It's, it's been a fulfilling you know, job, and... Hard one. I, I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, my mother was a teacher in the public school system, and I, gee, I was just uh, a teenager and a little kid. But I, I, I got to thinking yesterday, and my mom is no longer around for me to ask her this. But I wonder, and I'll ask you: Were you ever so heartbroken about these? Some of these kids, maybe, obviously, not all, but some of them. Maybe they had bad home lives. Did you ever lose sleep over them? I, I wish I would have asked my mom that, because I think her answer would have been yes. Yes, and your mom probably was a little bit different than my situation, because, I, you know, a private school is different demographics. They're not as wealthy as most people think, but these children still had emotional needs that sometimes the families weren't being met or the school system or just being in school itself um that i had one little boy that um challenger has an 80 percent or above 
policy, so they're supposed to get 80%. And I had one first grader, a little six-year-old, com- totally competitive. And he had a really hard time, and he would beat himself up over any test score if it was like a 79%. And I oh, could wow. see how, you know, they don't have the emotional intelligence to say um, <laughs> the percentage is not what matters. Is It's the concept. And did you understand the concept? And 79 versus 80, 1%, it doesn't matter. And yeah. he would he would beat himself up over it. He didn't stay at Challenger because it wasn't a healthy environment for him. And his parents, thankfully, were really supportive of me because that was a situation that if I didn't have their support, I'm sure they could have, you know, blamed me for the pressure he was feeling. But, no, there's, I mean, that's just one example of some emotional problems. And some of them were, you know, families with or without money are sometimes dysfunctional. So there's definitely dysfunctional. Don't you think, though, a lot of the uh, people who beat themselves up, that probably stems from the parents telling them to do better? Um, not necessarily. He was really good at sports and really competitive already, and that comparison is happening in a competitive environment. So he's smart enough to pick up that I'm not the top, I'm, you know, and... And to him, the message was, I'm not good enough. I'm not doing well enough. And I think we can, I think children at young ages can internalize that when they're comparing themselves to their peers. I think I did that as a child, too. Well, here's the thing. I remember in high school, I came home with a report card, and I got a C on it. And my dad just gave me an earful, tore me up one side and down the other. And... You know, I kind of argued back and forth. I argued more with my mom than my dad because my mom was a good listener. But I, I thought, geez, I see, that's not that bad. And uh, now, to my dad's credit, I did strive to do better because I didn't want another earful from him again. And, yeah. I, you know, I know people who've gotten all B's and their parents. So I just, that's why I asked if a lot of that was the parents' fault because. Sometimes it is. You know, it's just hard to tell. With this particular student, I don't think it was the parents at all. I think it was just okay. his own self, his own self-judgment. You know, because he's yeah. comparing himself to his peers. At a, you know, yeah. used to being at the top, used to being the best at things, and just not emotionally strong enough to be able to say, "I don't have to be the best at everything." <laughs> yeah, now just so you know, just so the listeners know, yes, I did get another C on a report card, and my dad was more understanding the second go-around, I think, because I prepared him for it. I told him that this <laughs> might happen, and so when he I, he read me my report card, not, he didn't say a word about it the second time. No I think, surprises. I prepared, yeah. So, uh, anyway... Um, so you're a teacher, and then how did you get involved with the Americans for Prosperity? And well, how did I you become the field director? Yeah, I volunteered on the Ron Paul campaign when I was moving up to Utah in 2011 for the 2012 election. And oh, through were that, were you still at Challenger? I, I no, I this is before I was at Challenger. So it was just like a few weeks when I was moving up here. I went oh, okay. to Colorado and I went to Vegas. So right oh, wow, before okay. moving to Utah, and and 
when I moved up here, because of the caucus system that the Republican Party has, where you, you know, vote someone in your neighborhood in to represent your, your vote at the convention, it was just easy to get elected. And so it, it was a way for me to engage in the political process. And I continue to volunteer on other campaigns at the state level. So I just, I finally had a place where I could get involved without having a lot of money. And that's what, you know, kind of started it all. And Challenger itself has very good, solid constitutional principles. But at one point, I just, I, I mean, it's a rough job. I was burnt out and I was having some frustrations and such. But another part was I was watching a bill up at the state legislature and I went the last day of the session. This was my last year teaching. And what what year was thought. this, 2012? No, I started teaching the fall of 2011, I think. So this would have been 2014 or 15. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I taught for three years and that third year I was watching this bill that I was very passionate about and this cause and I didn't have any time to go up to the state legislature until the last day and by then it was too late and I remember just thinking I'd become like everyone else I don't have time to fight these important battles for freedom how do I get involved I you know I'm so caught up in my job I am so caught up in my job that I'm not doing what I think is most important I'm teaching children about freedom and that's good but I'm I'm not able to have the time to actually join the fight and there's something wrong here and I was you know I had some frustrations with uh, some some more management type things that I just wasn't jiving with my personality which really probably just came down to a personality difference and I just would burn out and I quit not knowing what I was going to do and I called my friend Zach or my friend Zach called me out of the blue as he often did and said hey I'm working for Americans for Prosperity so I didn't know this but they had just opened up their chapter so probably was 2015 so I went in and I volunteered and I even took a part-time job at $10 an hour and got another job that paid my bills and just kind of got a feel for what Americans for Prosperity was doing and I did that for about nine months, almost an entire year, before I finally said, hey, I, I don't think you guys are going to hire me full-time, because they had thought when I was hired that an uh, opening would come, and an opening didn't come within the state. I applied for different places outside of the state, but wasn't sure if I really wanted to move. And then, and then it did. It came last March, and they called me up and said, hey, do you still want this position? And I said, absolutely, sign me up. So that's how I became the field director for Americans for Prosperity. Yeah, and uh, just so you know, I, I didn't realize just how powerful the Americans for Prosperity was until I looked it up on Wikipedia in preparation for this podcast. Uh, they actually put on, you probably know this, uh, they actually put on a informal presidential meet the candidates thing with uh, 
Herman Cain, Mitt Romney, Rick Santorum, Michelle, Bauken, Michelle Bachman, and Tim, and I cannot remember his last name. It was I couldn't even pronounce it if I tried. Oh, Tim P.H. Oh, no, never mind. That was I, I can't remember his last name. I don't remember either. <laughs> um, and then the Americans for Prosperity uh, also helped uh, transform the Tea Party in 2011. Uh, I remember when the, or 2009, I guess. I remember back when the Tea Party was a big deal uh, back in that era. And uh, they've done a lot of things. Uh, they're owned by the Koch brothers, which I know the Koch brothers have a bad rap. Um, not sure what that's all about. Maybe you can shed some insight there and how you feel about that. I know the Koch brothers got a lot of flag for supporting Marco Rubio. Yeah, the, the thing is, is that from the liberal perspective, and it's a little bit of a, a straw man logic fallacy, logical fallacy, it's the Koch brothers are billionaires, and this is their organization to prop up more of the conservative-type policies that just help the 1%. And that drives me bonkers, because, you know, for everything else that Americans for Prosperity does and stands for, it's probably the only conservative group that actually fights the idea of corporate welfare, which is government getting subsidies or tax credits to big businesses that they won't give to the average person or to small businesses. And so that whole, you know, I could care less if you hate the Koch brothers or you disagree with what we're doing, but I think that is an absolute misrepresentation of <laughs> what the organization stands for, because although we are for limited government, we are for lower taxes, and I, we're, you know, we're against Obamacare. And I'm sure there's lots of policies that a lot of liberals could say, oh, I, we totally disagree on that. But the one thing, yeah, well, criminal justice reform is another thing that liberals would agree with us on. But that's the funny thing is that there's that corporate welfare thing is something that we actually advocate against. And that's what they say this organization's main goal is. And that drives me bonkers. Actually, yeah, the, the uh, Americans Prosperity did air ads. They spent $8 million uh, fighting corporate welfare, or at least talking about it anyway, on TV ads exposing Solyndra and the money that was loaned to them. We know what happened. They filed bankruptcy in uh, right. late 2011, wasn't it? Right, right. Yeah. And at the state level... It happens at the state level as well with the the Larry H. Miller Foundation owns the Jazz. And 2016, in the summer of 2016, I I have a yoga instructor that's totally liberal. And when he found out I'm with Americans for Prosperity, I don't know if he figured out that I worked for him yet, but figured out that I was super involved. He, you know, we kind of had our little spats back and forth or whatnot. And totally love the guy what he's doing is amazing but definitely disagree on a lot of things yeah but the one thing that we agree on is that corporate welfare thing and so it just you know he said that same thing this is americans for prosperity don't you know this is the cook brothers trying to hold up their billionaire you know stack the laws to help the one percent and you know if you look at voting records and stuff like that then then there, you could kind of make that argument because 
of compromises that happen in the United States Congress that that Americans for Prosperity has vocally supported some compromises that they thought were moving in the right direction and, you, you know, towards more economic and conservative values that maybe someone that's more or less liberal or conservative would disagree with or be able to say, oh, see, they're helping the wealthy. But, but for in general, at the state level, in 2016, when the jazz team, the Larry H. Miller Foundation came, they asked for a tax, um, basically, to not pay property taxes for a few years so that they could renovate the jazz arena. And they even have the Taxpayers Association, which is the watchdog for, you know, taxpayers, more of a conservative type of an organization, that said, yeah, we've, you know, running the statistics, it looks like they're going to bring more money into the state, so we're good to go. But the thing is, is that any time Republicans make that argument that, oh, it's going to be good for business, it's going to be good for everyone because it's going to bring more jobs and economy into the state, a lot of times those statistics are very biased, and there's no follow-up to ever find out if our taxpayer dollars or the subsidies or the, the tax rate actually brought in as much money as they all thought it would. You know, once it's passed, nobody, there's no accountability. And Americans for Prosperity at the state Utah chapter, we were the only ones that were vocalizing our, our disapproval of giving a big property tax break to a, a large wealthy organization <laughs> just because they yeah. want to renovate their, their arena. <laughs> yeah, if taxes were that great, uh, why did they need a tax break? I agree with you, and, you know, it's kind of funny that uh, there's a $700 million tax hike here in the state of Utah to go to teachers. Well, if Gil Miller is so adamant about the tax hike, why doesn't she just donate $7 million or have uh, those that are proponents of it donate it to the Utah Education Union? They'd love to see that kind of money. Yeah, well, you know, she'll spend probably $2 million trying to get her tax increase passed for education. And there is a hypocrisy there that yeah. liberals are good at spotting and conservatives less so, where these big businesses, they go in, you know, and get their property tax break. And for, for the same family, um, for Gail Miller to be a the main financer of the Our Schools Now ballot initiative to get more funding for education. These are taxes that she herself, you know, corporations have different rules and taxation laws to follow, and so they probably won't see a 10% income tax and a 10% sales tax increase that is being proposed by this ballot initiative for education. And that's yeah, that is that is where liberals get it right. The the rules, the taxation rules, the way they've been written, they do benefit people who are wealthy over those who are poor, and it's not necessarily a fair situation. And the question is, what do we do about that? You know, we've got to make it once again an equal playing field where government treats all individuals equally by principle. And quite honestly, we are all just taxed so much in this country that we've got to cut spending. <laughs> Otherwise. Speaking of uh, taxes, you know, mm -hmm. all the Republicans uh, in D.C. right now are all for this Donald Trump tax uh, 
break, which I don't know. I, I I'm actually for cutting taxes on corporations, even though they're very rich. Uh, just because I realize that when taxes are cut at the corporate level, they can hire more people. Then obviously those people who are hired can eventually go out on their own and do things if they want to. I know that's a little idealistic of me, but it happens. Uh, yeah, but yeah, here's the yeah. thing that bothers me, and I'm not a bother any liberal out there. I think it is. In fact, I know it is. Um, this tax break, or this supposed tax break, I'm not sure how much of a tax break it really is, first of all, because it's going to definitely give a tax break to corporations, but then the small businesses, and this was proven. Now, this this may change over time because it's in uh, the Senate right now being worked oh, on. Oh, I know. Yeah. Um, that. The small businesses do not get a tax deduction. Well, uh, Donald Trump is a businessman, and he should be fighting against this tooth and nail right now. He I ought to agree. be tweeting out. Yeah, he ought to be tweeting out. He ought to be getting on Periscope and all the social media outlets. Do videos about this. Uh, where's Donald Trump, the businessman? Right, and I think it will be a horrible error. I, I am for lowering the corporate tax rate. We have the highest corporate tax rate, and we. But the thing is, is we have so many loopholes that that they get out of paying that corporate tax rate anyway. So we need to lower it so that it will you lower it and and eliminate a lot of the loopholes. But it, yeah. I think what is probably happening, and I'm not too. I don't have a lot of faith and trust in in government. So. Yes, I'm afraid that what may happen is they may lower the corporate tax rate without fixing the problem of some of the loopholes. And if they close some of those loopholes, they might, yeah, they might hurt small businesses in that manner. And I, I haven't followed, followed it closely enough to say exactly where this tax plan is today. And I know it's been being debated back and forth. And, yes, and Americans for Prosperity is for tax reform, but we, we kept it general. We have five general things that we wanted to see to make it more fair and equitable for everybody. And, you know, going forward with this, we all knew that when it gets to the Senate, the House seems to be generally pretty good. When it gets to the Senate, we don't know what we're going to get or if it is going to end up being better than what we have and that it has been kind of it is kind of scary i don't yeah. trust enough that it will be hopefully we put some pressure on them though yeah uh what else is the americans prosperity lobbied against since you've been around because i know they did i don't know if you probably weren't on this bus tour since it happened in 2009 the keep your hands off my health care yeah i i've followed americans for prosperity since 2015, I believe, and that's at the state level, and I tell people this all the time, you'll have to forgive me because I, Americans for Prosperity does do a lot on the national level, but I get so yeah. caught up in our state fights that yeah, I don't so, okay, focus that's, on Yeah, those. so what have so, you personally lobbied against since you've joined the Americans for Prosperity on a state level? I actually worked with you on one of those uh, lobbying against yeah. the UTA sales tax. I don't know if you remember. I yeah, I do. Yeah, I had forgotten that. Yes, yeah, so we 
That was one of the first ones that we worked against. Right before that was Medicaid expansion. And between... Oh, that's uh, right. Yes, yes. So we were against Medicaid expansion. We said it expanded more of Obamacare. And basically it would have allowed more... Um, the, the, the price, the salary level... <laughs> what's the word? The salary level of of poverty would have been raised to give more benefits out and it was just an expansion of Obamacare and we were against that and <laughs> so we knocked doors for that that one did die in the state of Utah who could be resurrected again as all of them could be and the UTA tax yeah that was prop one was the next one I was actually for tax. the sales tax uh, at that time until I found out the mismanagement of money, and the Tribune did a wonderful article explaining the mismanagement of money. Yeah, you know what? And that's the thing it is, is when you have a, a quasi-public-private business, the incentive for them to manage their funds like a normal business is often gone because they have this mindset that the money will come whether or not they are managing or providing a good service for people you know when when businesses operate independent from government that happens automatically that accountability happens automatically for the most part because if they give a bad service then you know as long as we have good fraud type of laws if they give a good service then they're going to be if it's what the population likes then they're going to then they're going to continue to grow and if they manage those funds right then they're going to continue to grow and if they don't manage those funds then they're going to fail yes. and when you have government whether it's a subsidy or you know or that quasi private relationship the, the incentive to do a good job isn't there you know too big to fail oh, we better bail them out then you know then oh, they don't yeah. fix they don't fix the issues they don't change anything because they don't feel the pain that is kind of the indication that they need to change yeah uh i want to get into a dialogue slash possibly debate about licensing because that was a big thing that was on the americans prosperity's website was licensing yeah now i am and I, you and i may disagree on this and that's that's perfectly fine um would be good to have a good respectful debate on here anyway i am for licensing up to a point for example being a broadcaster i'm glad that the fcc the federal communications commission does issue licenses to operate on certain frequencies and here is why i don't know if you're aware but uh, when radios came out really big in the 20s early 20s radio stations were starting to interfere with each other uh, on the same frequency as competition well that kind of screwed the consumer over because they'd be listening to one station and then the inter stations would be interfering with each other on the same frequency that wasn't fair to the consumer nor was it fair to the radio station owner who was trying to get his or her message out there and uh, broadcast whatever it is that they wanted to broadcast back then it would have been old-time radio shows and so the FCC actually it wasn't called the FCC I can't remember what it was called before then but it was uh, something else it was done under uh, President Hoover 
he <laughs> reluctantly did this. And since the FCC got involved, things have gotten a lot better. And another reason why I am for licensing on frequencies, I used to have a CB radio. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I don't know if you know much about CBs, you used to have to be a licensed CB operator. All you did is just uh, fill out a form and then you'd get your license. Hmm. I can tell you when the FCC did away with that, and I'll just use the expression out here, even though it's an LDS podcast, all hell broke loose on the CB, and I know this from first-hand experience. Uh, hmm. You had people going up on the mountaintops running what are called linears, or some call them amplifiers. It'll amplify your signal to the whole, well, where I live, Boise Valley. And they sounded terrible because they did not know how to modify the amplifiers. And you had people that would throw out what's called a dead key. They'd jam up the signal by holding down the talk button on the microphone and doing this for minutes on minutes, sometimes an hour or so. It just got to be a mess. And so that's where that's an area where I am for licensing, because I've seen firsthand what happens when you just open up the frequencies to everybody and anybody. What do you think? Well, I can't speak to that specific, because I don't know enough about it. But in general, I probably lean towards having more freedom and less licensing probably more so than most people but your arguments sound rational as to why licenses are needed um, speaking as the field director for Americans for Prosperity I can tell you that you probably agree with us a little bit more than you might think where, oh okay yeah, what we have done working on licensing has mostly been for lower income type of licensing. Now, the Institute for Justice did a study, and Utah is actually ranked, actually this year, they, they do the study, they did the study again. This year it ranked 17 with the most burdensome licensing. And they have a list of about 50 occupations, and they are things that, you know, like massage, is that something that it's really necessary to be licensed, or is the, the amount of time required or the funding, you know, or the, the amount of funds required to get licensed. And there, the main philosophy or the main argument behind this is that if you want upward mobility in a society, and by upward mobility, we mean the ability to move out of poverty, then you've got to, you've got to get rid of barrier, barriers to entry to work. And there's obviously some situations where licensing makes sense. You know, the radio, it sounds like that one made sense to have those licensing. It prevented mm-hmm. chaos from happening. Uh, and I don't know the specifics, so I don't know. Maybe I would disagree if I knew more about radio stuff, but I don't. <laughs> you know, doctors and lawyers, um, you know, there's, there's obviously some reasons why they might need licensing. Uh, with a high high skilled profession, and and you know, so so I I and other of my libertarian friends probably would even argue some of those away. But these studies and what Americans for Prosperity has worked on, um, based on the Institute for Justice studies, are mostly like barbers, haircutters, and people 
um, upholstery is one of them. And one of the reasons why Utah is actually ranked so low, which their ranking is probably not correct because we've advocated and changed some of the licensing laws up at the state legislature last year. So we probably are a little bit better than they think we are, but they didn't didn't get the updated laws included. But our construction industry is a lot more arduous to get through than other states. And and that, you know, and it's hanging doors. Like there's licensing processes for hanging doors. And if you go to the Institute for Justice, if you just go to ij.org, I think that there's room for a debate on whether you should be licensed for that or not, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, when people say quality, the problem is is that quality, you know, licensing creates a barrier to entry. And the problem is is that most people think that barrier to entry ensures quality to happen. And that's not the case often you know you can have one person go to beauty school for and do their 4,000 hours or whatever the requirements are you can have another person and you they still might not be that great at cutting hair <laughs> yeah, they might get licensed true. you know and that's that's why consumer reviews are actually more important in a lot of these low-income areas than you know if somebody paints your wall poorly then if you're mad enough, you're going to write all these reviews. And that's actually more of a deterrent because nobody nobody actually gets on the, the website and says, okay, where was their, you know, licensing? You know, there's, there's points where that's a doctor's true. license is kind of important because he holds yeah. somebody's life in their hands. And if, if, if there's malpractice of some sort, then the right to take away that right to practice might sometimes be necessary beyond just market intervention of consumer reports but we also have EMTs that have less training than than <laughs> than a hair a barber an upholsterer in the state of Utah and you have to stop and ask yourself when an EMT holds your life in your hands if it does take them three months then what's wrong with loosening up some of the requirements for people who want to braid hair, that's kind of the classic example, the Institute for Justice found a refugee here who was forced by the Cosmetology Board of the state of Utah to stop braiding hair. She was doing African hair braiding from her out of her home and, and getting paid to do so to help put her husband through school. Here she is, you know, a refugee trying to work and she had a skill that she could offer to the market and the cosmetology board found out and shut down her little home business and it would have required like two thousand dollars for her to go to beauty school it would have required you know at least a year or two years of her time depending on how fast you go through beauty school full-time or part-time and the problem is is that they didn't even offer classes for hair braiding, African hair braiding. They just saw oh, wow. her as competition, and they were allowed to bar her from doing that. And that's that's the problem, is that a lot of times, although some of the licensing laws make sense, a lot of times it becomes a way to 
stop people, stop your competition, to limit your competition. And a good example is actually the construction industry, because a lot of it, up until last year, we've helped fix this, but uh, painting required a two years apprenticeship. You know, so that kind of is an interesting, it sounds good on the surface, but if you require it, then pretty much, any painter who's willing to apprentice someone knows he's training his competition. You know, so what incentive does he have to allow you to be an apprentice for two years? You know, so there's 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 a conflict of interest often in these licensing laws that you have to look at a little bit more deeply to realize is there. And the general populace just says, oh, it's for safety and it's going to promote quality. And the question is, does it really promote quality? And are there really safety concerns in most of these licensing? Some of them, yes, but in most of them, in upholstery? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we, you know? yeah, we could pro- yeah I, I think you and I would actually agree on that. Um, I will, however, say, and I know very little about plumbing, I think you ought to be maybe a licensed plumber just because plumbing can get really complicated. And you need to know a lot about how the sewer system works and things like that. So I, but yeah, we could probably, we might actually agree on the other things that, you know, should someone have to be licensed to cut hair or something? I mean, let's be realistic. How many of us, and I'm in this crowd, I'm sure you were too, how many of us had our mothers cut our hair when we were children? Oh, definitely. And yeah, I live so to know about it. We could, uh, we could, uh, argue, I mean, if the government knew about it, would they, of course, I realize we both grew up in the 80s, but if the guy, you know, I, okay, let's go to 2000, uh, 2006, 2007, all the way up to 2008. I, I didn't pay for a haircut. I went to someone that I knew and that you know. Right. was tied into George Witt. She cut my hair, and so did another person who uh, it saved me money. So, okay, back then when uh, the government was clamping down on things like that more, uh, yeah, I'm sure if the government knew or somebody found out that I was doing this, uh, well, uh, the government would be knocking on our door demanding a license, wouldn't they? Yes, yes. Even though I was paying absolutely nothing. Right, right. So, yeah, I I actually agree with you in that respect. Yes. Uh, so, so the actual study has 102, and although it has some construction, I'm I'm just browsing through it while we talk. It I don't know if it even has plumber listed as this, but it it ranks them as as the most. Um, Average days, average exams, average fees, and all the states that license it, the number of states that license it. So with this study, a lot of their argument is is simple that, okay, in, back in the 1950s, if we licensed one in every 20 occupations, and now we license one in every third occupation, is this really necessary or is it a barrier to entry? And then secondly, they actually, you know, if, if you license upholstering in Utah, but Arizona, Nevada, and Colorado, and New Mexico don't, 
then you can look at these surrounding states and say, okay, does upholstery really have any safety concerns that that, that Utah's licensing is helping with? That, you know, are we seeing in the other states that don't have this license? Are we seeing horrible disasters from this? And the answer is often no. You know, so that's kind of the 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 overall picture of this study. And it's, it's interesting, like a funeral attendant, there's three states that license that. It'd be $124, which doesn't sound too extravagant. And then two days lost and it looks like one test. So that's not super arduous. Wait, what is that? Um, average yeah. minimum grade. Yeah. So, but but at the same time, you have to stop and say, well, is somebody just making that hundred and twenty-four dollars just to make that hundred hundred and twenty-four dollars? If only three states actually license that, then is that really logical to say that that has any safety or any benefits necessary besides lighting somebody's you know, pockets with a, an extra $124. <laughs> yeah, and I, I understand, too, a lot of uh, certain maybe construction workers or corporate bosses will go knock on the legislature's door. Oh, we want to we wanna give, we want to make a law. Well, you to make a law to have a permit to do this, 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 and this. And in some ways, it might be good. I mean, if you're building a commercial building or really, really specific, but this is something is somebody doing sheetrock in their basement or something you know right. I, I don't think you need a permit for that but the you know the example that they gave on the website oh we want permits and oh by the way we'll donate to your campaign and you'll make more money and the list goes on and on well yeah that sounds good to the legislature because they'll they're getting something out of it and that right. goes back to crony capitalism doesn't it Yes, yes, it does. So it kind of falls under falls under Americans for Prosperity core principles right there. And like you, yeah. you know, Americans for Prosperity isn't saying we won't have licensed doctors or no licensing. You might find some some people that personally believe that within the organization, but that's not their stance at all. It's more okay. based on this this Institute for Justice study, which even Obama administration looked at and said yeah we've got to make this easier for people to get a job so it's something that potentially liberals and conservatives could have joined hands on here in the state of sure. Utah unfortunately <laughs> that didn't happen <laughs> and I'm glad I asked you about this because I thought we might get into a debate about it that's what happens uh, you know you ask these questions and you get clarification right right Exactly. Well, um, one, a couple more questions I want to ask you, and then, unfortunately, I have to go. But I definitely want to do another podcast with you because we didn't cover everything that I wanted to. Um, I know you're um, pretty conservative. I would say I'm probably about uh, maybe 80% conservative, probably. Although I know that you and I agree on a lot of things because of our personal conversations. Um, right. But does it bother you? If you go way back, you mentioned uh, J. Reuben Clark earlier. He was pretty political in general conference. Does it bother you that people like Ezra Taft, or that, uh, well, does it even bother you that Ezra Taft Benson wasn't political, really, when he was prophet? Or does it bother you that the church doesn't talk politics at general conference? I know why they don't, but do you wish that they did, or what's your stance on that? 
I don't know, it used to bother me. And I kind of grew up with this idea that um, Ezra Taft Benson's mouth had been shut because we weren't listening, you know, about the Constitution and the heavenly banner that it was. Yeah. And I do think that's true to a certain extent. However, living here in Utah, I have seen, um, although it's not said from the pulpit, I have seen the church lobbyists and the church get involved in something. And quite honestly, it is kind of a tough situation because everything that they got involved in, I was not in favor of their position, their official uh, position in you know, so it's just really interesting. It creates a dichotomy if we definitely do want to be a church that accepts uh, diversity of opinions when it's not 100% this is God's, you know, this is the prophet speaking for God at this moment, and he's telling you that you have to vote this way. You know, it's, and that's a dangerous power and a dangerous thing to say, but I think that there are definitely some core principles that the church has and the church invites everybody to study and form their own opinions based on those core principles and seeing how the church um, lobbyists function for the church's for the church's interests because it's not necessarily that they have an official stance on everything but they get involved more than people realize at the local level, at the state legislature. And in the church's defense, sometimes that is because the almost the entire um, state legislature is predominantly LDS, and sometimes they start quoting scriptures at each other or start calling on the authority of the church, and the church kind of freaks out and has to jump in and say, oh, well, we don't have an official stance on that, or this is our official stance. Yeah, but there's been a couple yeah. of bills that they've killed that I was in favor of. And, you know, we don't know everything. I, I respect an organization and I respect the church that it does not, as far as I can tell, pressure its members into, into political um, pockets. <laughs> although, although I Unless you want to talk about Prop 8. <laughs> well... We could we could go there another day for sure because yeah, it would be interesting enough, yeah. to see what you thought of that because that was that was an interesting. Um, I have an interesting viewpoint on gay marriage. I'll just say this for now, and we can debate it another day or talk about it. If two people are gay and want to get married, I don't care. The problem I have with the Supreme Court with the issue that they did, or saying that all states have to accept it, only because. And this is where it gets dicey for me, only because of the unintended consequences. You've got the Baker in Colorado, Baker in Portland under scrutiny right now, and they have a gag order. They can't talk about their case. You know, if they don't want to, they shouldn't have to cater to a gay wedding or anything like that. That's their right. And then that's the only problem. That's one of the problems I have. But then here's another problem. Being uh, for civil rights... It is hard to argue against gay marriage from a civil rights standpoint because there was a time when interracial marriage was illegal in the country, especially in the state of Utah, not just Utah either. And look at the Supreme Court got involved, so it's a really dicey issue on both sides. Well, being libertarian, more libertarian, I used to take 100% the stance that 
marriage is just not something government has much of a place in anyway. You know, people's relationships with each other. And if two men love each other, then who are any of us to actually, you know, what position do we have to stop them? And I think I came the other way, actually. I'll just keep this brief. I came the other way because of all the all the libertarianism breaks down when you're not talking about adults anymore. And so as I started listening to the arguments pro-traditional family as to why protecting that definition of marriage is important, I actually came to the point that government does have a place in protecting the legal definition of marriage as between a man and a woman because uh, every child does deserve to have their parents and government does have a place in holding parents responsible for their offspring and that's where I think it gets kind of tricky is is allowing gay people to adopt children whom they would love okay you know I have lots of friends that would say oh absolutely not but if the child's in an abusive situation then being loved by anyone in a good home is better than not being loved by anyone so yeah, that it could it could be better for some children to be adopted by two gay people. Is it ideal? Mm-hmm. No, and that's where I get kind of frustrated. Is the liberals tend to um, they make these claims that there's no difference? It's the no difference claims. There's no difference between a woman and a woman loving a child and raising a child, and a man and a woman raising a child. And you know what? Adoption, there is a difference between raising a child that's not your biological offspring. And all the social studies show this, you know, single-parent homes and outcomes. You know, it's, 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 and we even have a few comparisons of people with, you know, same-sex relationships raising children, and their children are speaking out as, and, I mean, the pop, the, popular ones that I've heard, you know, speak out and say, you know what, it was different and it wasn't ideal. It's not ideal. That doesn't mean that it's not better than an abusive situation, you know, so that's kind of, kind of the, the logical side of adoption, but in general, whenever possible, the child does better with its biological parents. And it needs to happen. And where that can't happen, then yes, they need to get into good, stable homes. And ideally, I still think man and woman makes more sense. But so I'm not sure if I, I'm pro adoption or against adoption. But in general, I side with the church on that. In and well, just because we need, we need to protect the family unit, and we need government to preserve that definition. That doesn't mean government can't tell two people that they don't love each other or that they can't have some sort of civil contract or whatnot, but we need to make sure that the the laws reflect that, yeah, that protection of children and not just protect adults and their right to consent in and out of relationships and whatever happens to the children that come wards of the state. So, yeah. Yeah. 
we can definitely go into that uh, on another podcast. I'll have you back because, <laughs> um, like I said, I didn't cover everything, and we could be here all day and not be very productive. Right. Uh, productive in conversation, sure, but not productive in other things. But uh, real quick here, uh, before we end the podcast, oh, and I do need to talk to you after the podcast. You're not in trouble, by the way. Right, right. Um, I remember now. I'm glad you reminded me. Um, what is your favorite part about being LDS? Favorite part is the knowledge that we have of what happened in the past, what happens in the future, what happened in our pre-Earth life, the knowledge that we came to this Earth as families, the knowledge that we can have eternal families, and basically the knowledge that we can become like Heavenly Father. And it's just, it just, a lot of it makes sense. It just makes sense, and oh, yeah. the feeling of being loved, and it just—it's a rock-solid foundation. And the LDS Church—we don't have it all. We don't have all the truth out there, and we're all trying. And other religions are trying, and some of them are doing a great job too. But what we do have is we have a little bit more of the piece of the puzzle of what happened before, and if we're studying the scriptures and paying attention a little bit more of the piece of the puzzle is what's coming and our purpose and our role in it and without that I think I would feel very lost even with it sometimes oh, yeah. I feel lost <laughs> it's interesting uh, I remember as a kid I must have been probably three maybe yeah I must have been about three years old I remember all week long where did I come from and all that I remember Let's see, three years old. I would have been a sunbeam, probably. Um, yeah. yeah. I remember the teacher saying, oh, we're going to learn about where we came from. And I thought, oh, good, I've been wondering that all week. And it made sense to me. still does. <laughs> That's sweet. And I think we don't realize how much children understand. <laughs> You're pretty young to have that thought. But yeah. Children are smarter than we think. <laughs> Yeah, well, thanks very much, uh, Joni, for being a part. Like I said, I will have you back. Uh, well, we didn't cover you. everything, thank but uh, I want to encourage you, the listeners, if you like what you hear, give us a high rating on iTunes. Email me, kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. You can also go ahead and like the Facebook page uh, at LDS Life Podcast. And in the meantime, I will see you probably either next week or possibly next month before Christmas time. Maybe I'll come out and share my favorite Christmas story or something. I do want to get uh, Peter Wolf back out here. I called him. I didn't get a response. So I'm waiting for him. I need to do a part two with him as well. In the meantime, folks, I will see you later.